Hey, daters. Are you sick of small talk and no date being planned? Well, I'm excited to introduce you to First Rounds on Me, a revolutionary dating app designed for modern singles who are fed up with the frustrations of today's dating scene. The app is all about actually helping you plan dates and build genuine connections. How so? Well, the only way you match with someone is by planning a date. Send a date, a time, and a location, and then the rest is up to you. Ready to go on real dates? You can get one free month of their premium subscription with code DOCTOR, D-O-C-T-O-R. Download First Rounds on Me using the link in the show notes and start building meaningful connections offline. Hello and welcome to Reimagining Love. I'm Dr. Alexandra Solomon. Relationships have the power to wound us and the power to heal us. As a clinical psychologist, author, and professor at Northwestern University, I've devoted my life to studying intimate partnerships and family dynamics. On Reimagining Love, I'm here to translate complex clinical topics into tools and takeaways that you can use in your relationships today. If you're ready to develop relational self-awareness and create vibrant and loving relationships with the people who matter most to you, you've come to the right place. I'm so glad that you're here. This episode of Reimagining Love is brought to you by Dame Products. Dame is a female-founded brand creating beautiful and groundbreaking products to enhance pleasure. It should come as no surprise to you that I love their mission of helping people feel comfortable in their sexuality, worthy of feeling good, and connected to their partners. Dame vibrators are specifically designed for people with vulvas. Dame also makes lube, massage oil, and arousal serums that are body safe and designed to be used with Dame's vibrators to heighten pleasure. Their products are designed with the community of Dame Labs and with the consultation of a clinical board of sexologists, OBGYNs, and physical therapists. I look forward to being a part of the Dear Dame series as a featured expert in spring 2022. You can use offer code LOVEPOD, L-O-V-E-P-O-D, to get 10% off your first order at Dame Products. So head to dameproducts.com and start shopping today. Welcome to another one of our solo deep dive conversations. Just you, just me, breaking it down. Our topic today is ghosting going to be talking about the unilateral cessation of contact, or as dictionary.com defines it, ghosting is the practice of ending a personal relationship with someone by suddenly and without explanation, withdrawing from all communication. Ghosting is disappearing without a trace, and it can happen in any relationship. You're going to hear in this episode that I'm going to talk specifically about the dynamics of ghosting in the dating world, in intimate relationships, but you're also going to hear that much of what I talk about applies to friendship as well. Here's the plan for this episode. I'm going to first contextualize ghosting in this current cultural zeitgeist, as well as in this current dating climate. Then... I'm going to explore why it is that ghosting hurts so very much. Next, I'm going to identify coping strategies that you can use if you've been ghosted. And then I'm going to talk about building a toolbox for what you can do if and when you are feeling tempted to ghost. So the caveat right up top is that in this episode, I am not talking about situations in which people need to ghost someone who is dangerous or abusive. Self-preservation is real. So we're not talking about those situations. In terms of the larger cultural context, you know, ghosting isn't new. I'm sure if we were talking to people, you know, 80 or 90 years ago, they would have described that there are times that a relationship ends with no explanation and people just disappear without a trace. Ghosting needs to be contextualized in sort of this cultural moment. And here's a finding that I want to start us off with. 
research has found a precipitous decrease in empathy levels among emerging adults. There was a study by Sarah Conrath, and she published her study in 2010 in the Personality and Social Psychology Review. It was a meta-analytic review, meaning that she looked across lots and lots of studies, and she sort of tracked cohorts of college students, of emerging adults across time. And what she found is that the average American college student in 2009 scored less empathic than 75% of college students in 1979, with the sharpest declines happening between 2000 and 2009. The data, you know, is a bit dated at this point, right? The study came out 12 years ago. So those college students, you know, add 10 years to their age. They are now folks who are well into their 20s and 30s and in the dating world. And I suspect that these trends have continued. We could do a whole episode on why culturally rates of empathy are decreasing. It likely has in part to do with technology. When we are on our phones, the energy becomes more self-focused. We go to our phones to find things for us, to distract us, to delight us. There's sort of a consumer mentality when we're engaging with our phones, perhaps a bit less than a relational mentality. And literally when we are on our phones, we are experiencing less facial gaze. And so much of empathy is ignited and activated by facial gaze, by looking in somebody's eyes, by reading those social cues. I don't want us to just kind of blame individuals because the other piece of this is that we are living in a time of massively compromised social safety nets. And that means that people literally have to look out for themselves and their interests, right? If I am needing to ensure, needing to spend my energy ensuring that I have what I need to make it through another day, it is more difficult than to experience empathy, to kind of hold on to that sense of responsibility to the collective. So there are lots of factors here. And I would also speculate that the pandemic intensifies all of this. At the beginning of the pandemic, it was easier to ghost people because nobody was seeing anyone in person. As we began to emerge from the pandemic, the New York Times coined a term in the spring of 2021. They called it the YOLO economy. You know, YOLO, you only live once. So perhaps there was a sense that, you know, if you were not a match with that person, you could just move on, find your next match out of ease and efficiency. You only live once. This is something we're also seeing with jobs, right? The great resignation. So this sense of YOLO. So the pandemic increasing this like sort of technicolor way of living, that the stakes are high. I don't know how long I'm going to be here. And this urgency to make sure that I'm having experiences that belong to me, that are by, for, and about me. But also with the pandemic, it's worth saying that living through a pandemic means that we have quite literally been in survival mode for months and years on end. And survival mode activates the parts of our brain that are in charge of self-preservation, that are all about ensuring basic safety. And when those parts of our brain are activated and vigilant, attention and energy are shifted away from those so-called higher parts of our brain, like our prefrontal cortex, which is the seat of empathy, compassion, the ability to see the whole picture. So those are some of the elements that I think have created the conditions for ghosting to take on a whole new flavor that happens more often, that it's more complicated. This big cultural context is not justification. It's just context. Okay, let's tighten our lens now and talk rather than just about the big cultural context. Let's talk about why ghosting is so very prevalent in today's dating scene. And again, people probably 50, 60, 70, 20 years ago were very likely ghosting. But when so much of dating begins and takes root and is transacted screen to screen, 
it creates a particular kind of dating climate and ghosting takes on a particular texture and tone. So I want to really talk that through. In this modern dating landscape, ghosting is more likely because of the sheer volume of contacts. People tend to have a higher number of potential connections open, so there are just literally more opportunities to ghost or to be ghosted. The number of people that you can swipe on in any given day is very likely more than the number of people your grandparents even considered dating in their entire dating lives. So just the volume is of an entirely different order. So more volume, more opportunity. Tied to that is the sense that dating apps fuel a low accountability vibe that normalizes ghosting. Connection that is screen to screen ends up feeling more tenuous and less real than connection that we are building in three dimensions in real life. I say it a lot that I want people to remember when they have their phone in their hand that they are transacting, they are swiping or communicating with a real three-dimensional flesh and blood person, but that's abstract. It's a bit hard to hold on to. Another aspect of this is that in today's modern dating landscape, Ambiguously defined relationship statuses are just more common these days, right? The idea of there's a talking phase before we've defined the relationship or we're seeing each other rather than being defined as boyfriend, girlfriend. There are situationships, there's hookups, friends with benefits. These very casual relationship statuses certainly can work when all parties are on the same page, when there is Adequate meta-communication, meaning talking about the relationship, people checking in to clarify expectations, to clarify boundaries, to find out how are you holding up, how am I holding up. And when that casual, ambiguously defined relationship is founded in deep respect and care. But when there is misalignment of expectations or unequal investment or an implicit or explicit prohibition against meta-communication, right, where we aren't allowed to talk about the relationship, then problems are likely to arise, and the stage is then set for ghosting. And then the last piece about why ghosting might be more likely in today's dating climate is, along with all of this, there's a mindset that there is always someone even hotter even smarter, even more interesting than the person that you are currently talking to or dating. And that person is only one swipe away. And that notion, first of all, I think it can fuel a compulsivity around swiping. Like I can't put my phone away because what if my soulmate is one more swipe away? And I think it also can fuel that low accountability dating culture and set the stage for ghosting. As my friend Esther Perel once brilliantly said, historically, we have asked the question, am I happy here? And today we ask the question, could I be happier somewhere else? Those are really radically different questions that put us on pretty significantly different paths. That could I be happier somewhere else creates this inherent kind of built-in tension and antsiness that can put us at risk of not having particularly respectful dating behaviors. And then I would argue that ghosting in this climate, in addition to being more likely, is also more painful. Why? Because screen-to-screen -screen communication is just so stark. You can literally open up your phone and see your unanswered text just staring back at you. You can see the end of the contact and potentially you can see what that person is now out in the world doing instead of responding to your text. That's painful. Ghosting is also more painful because people are likely to have more experiences of being ghosted. The average age of entry into marriage is much older than it was even 20 years ago. So people have 
many more years between sexual maturity and saying I do, if they ever say I do. And that means that people have more experiences of entering into and exiting out of intimate relationships. And more experiences, again, creates more potential to have the painful experience of being ghosted. When something happens once, it sucks. But when something happens many times, we're at risk of developing coping strategies like numbing out, hardening, shutting down, becoming cynical about love and sex and relationships. And we're at risk of making it about us. So we're at risk of shame setting in. And shame is one of the more painful emotions that we can experience. I said before that ghosting is common. Let me share some data with you. In 2020, the International Journal of Environmental Research and Public Health published a study that found that between 13 and 23% of a sample of 18 to 40-year-olds reported that they had been ghosted. In 2019, there was a YouGov survey of American adults that found that 30% of them admitted to having ghosted a romantic partner or a friend. You know, those two studies also highlight that the world is not neatly divided into those who ghost and those who are ghosted, right? Lots of folks who are brave and humble will admit that they hate being ghosted and they also have ghosted, right? We are nothing if not complicated. The last piece of data I want to share with you is not scientific. It comes from my Instagram feed. But if you follow my work on Instagram, you know that sometimes I post stickers and surveys that kind of help me get my finger on the pulse of what's going on for people. And I share this data oftentimes in the hopes of validating and normalizing people's experiences. So I posted a little survey and it just was, the question was, have you been ghosted? And we heard back from 1,299 people. So again, not a random sample. It's people who seek out the content that I share, but still nearly 1,300 people around the world. It's a lot of people. So in response to the question, have you been ghosted? 81% said that yes, they had been ghosted. 19% said no, they hadn't. And then I shared one of those little sliders on Instagram and I put some little tags under to indicate sort of how deep into the relationship were you when you had been ghosted. And it was like brand new, a month to three months, four to six months, six months plus. And the average place where people put that slider was around one to three months. You know, the timing matters. Being ghosted after sending a few messages back and forth over a couple of weeks and being ghosted one to three months into a relationship after you've spent time together face-to-face, after you've potentially met each other's friends, after you've made love, these are really different experiences. And in fact, I got to be honest, I was pretty shocked and upset that so many people had shared that they had been ghosted after that length of time. I know that I had seen that in my clinical practice and seen that in my personal life, but it still, it, it hurts my heart. And we're not going to do the suffering Olympics, that idea of sort of comparing what hurts more and what hurts less. But I do just want to name that those are different experiences, right? To be ghosted early on after some messaging before we've even had a chance to get to know each other, that evokes one particular set of pain points. It's the loss of this potential future, confusion perhaps about why you were feeling more connected and excited than they were, wondering what it was, perhaps that they had seen about you or seen in your communication that led them away. So that risk, again, of making it personal. Those are some of the pain points that can happen when ghosting occurs really early on. But then if ghosting has occurred after some time together, another set of pain points arises. There can be a sense of betrayal, the sense of like, how could you do this to me after all the experiences we've had, and then confusion about, did I even mean anything to you at all? And perhaps some sense of anger at the self, like what had I missed? How had I let myself get involved with somebody who had the capacity to do this? So again, the way in which that arrow is at risk of bending 
and we're at risk of kind of turning against ourselves. Like, how could I have let this happen to me? What did I miss along the way? Those are some of the pain points that can happen when people are ghosted, you know, once an, a, a connection has been established, once people are very clearly dating each other. Do you feel like you're at a crossroads in your love life? Maybe you are sick of modern dating or wondering if the person that you're with is your person. Whatever your situation, I have the perfect podcast for you, Dateable. Dateable is your insider's look into modern dating, hosted by Julie Krafchick and Yue Shu. Julie and Yue bring a sense of humor to their insightful explorations of all things dating, turning matches into actual dates, the psychology of relationships, red flags, attachment styles, and so much more. I am proud to have been a guest on their podcast three times. So if you're looking for a great starting point, check out my latest episode with them when you're ready and they are not. I'll put a link at the bottom of the show notes. Wherever you start, this podcast is going to help you feel inspired to date differently and create a love life that works for you. Subscribe to Dateable wherever you get your podcasts. You know, in this conversation, I'm highlighting themes that transcend both early ghosting and later ghosting. And then in some places, I'm going to highlight one particular context or another context. Let's move on, though, and talk about why ghosting hurts, because it does. That is crystal clear. We're taking that as our sort of foundation here, that ghosting hurts. But let's get really clear and specific about why ghosting hurts, because very often, people minimize their experiences and they say things like, if that person had the capacity to ghost me, it shouldn't hurt like this, or it shouldn't hurt because it wasn't that long, et cetera, et cetera. So I want to start us off by validating just exactly why ghosting hurts so much. Reason number one, because of the Zygarnik effect. (laughs) What you may ask is the Zygarnik effect. Zygarnik was a social psychologist or is a social psychologist who found, you're gonna have to, you know, pull out your old psychology 101 textbook for this one. Zygarnik found that we are more likely to recall tasks that we didn't have a chance to complete. Our brain and our heart and our soul hate open tabs. We don't like things that remain open. So that could be a task as simple as, I don't know, grocery shopping or something. We don't like things that are incomplete. When things are incomplete, they kind of stay in our memory and they act like a little itch that we can't scratch. So at a very basic cognitive level, being ghosted is an open tab and it just means that our brains are at risk of cycling around it and around it and around it and having a hard time kind of closing that tab and putting the experience in the past where it belongs. So take that one in and just breathe it in and be like, ah, my freaking brain, right? Like, thank you, brain, for, you know, making sure that all the tasks get done. But darn it, why is it so hard when you've been ghosted? You can't close that loop because the person has disappeared. And so your brain is confused about why that loop is open. And that's difficult. So compassion to the brain that wants to just close up all the tabs and compassion to the self then for having a hard time moving on in the wake of an open tab. The second reason that being ghosted hurts so much is because hurt hurts. Emotional hurt hurts. Our brains code emotional pain in remarkably similar ways as our brain codes physical pain. Hurt hurts because it hurts. (laughs) And I would love for all of us to be able to validate emotional pain the same way we validate physical pain. But sometimes I do need to remind people that literally at a neurological level, there are parts of our brain that cannot tell whether something was emotionally painful or physically painful. And so that's why the phenomenological experience, the felt sense is pain. Sometimes I do need to kind of help us, you know, almost like back end our way into validating our experiences by saying that emotional pain and physical pain are remarkably similar. The third reason that ghosting hurts so darn much 
is because it is an ambiguous loss. So endings, whether through death, divorce, breakup, moving, being fired, whatever the ending is, endings evoke emotional pain and they put us face to face with emotions like sadness, anger, guilt, sometimes shame. And we tend to use rituals to bind those strong emotions. Think about all of the rituals around death. People send flowers, bring casseroles. There are particular prayers and ways of dressing, particular days you know, during which you do particular things with family, with friends, with religious figures. Right? There are all these rituals that help us bind grief, that help us move through grief. There are these touchstones. But not all of our losses give us the ability to use familiar markers to help guide us on our way. So there's a psychologist, Dr. Pauline Boss, who many years ago at this point coined the term ambiguous loss. Ambiguous losses are those losses that leave us lacking closure. They're losses that exist outside of ritual, outside of linearity. And ambiguous losses compromise our healing because they're shrouded in uncertainty and we aren't able to have the kind of closure that we need. So Dr. Boss teaches us that there are two types of ambiguous losses. Type one, you are physically still here, but you are psychologically gone. That type of ambiguous loss is when we have, for example, a loved one with dementia a child with special needs, especially special needs that involve a loss of prior skills, a loved one with a traumatic brain injury, a loved one who is living with untreated substance abuse or untreated mental health problems, um, divorce and separation can go in this category of you are physically still here, but psychologically you don't live in the same place inside of me. Or a loved one who has been a victim of a crime and is therefore traumatized and sort of feels like they aren't who they used to be. That kind of you aren't who you used to be phenomenon. That's an ambiguous loss of that you're physically here, but you're not who you used to be. And then type two is this, you are physically absent, but you are psychologically present. You're physically gone, but you're psychologically still here. Sometimes this is a miscarriage, giving up a child for adoption sometimes is experienced as an ambiguous loss. Migration, especially sudden or forced. Uh, a loss where somebody has died in a plane crash or another situation where a body isn't recoverable, so therefore some um, death rituals are not available. A loved one who's kidnapped or who disappears. And then ghosting would go in this category. And again, Listen, I'm not talking about magnitude or order, and we're not comparing suffering, right? I'm not going to sit here and say that being ghosted is like having a loved one kidnapped. We're not doing a comparison. I'm just trying to invite us to get our heads and our hearts around the quality of experience when you are physically gone, you are not part of my life anymore, but psychologically that loop is open. I don't quite know how to grieve you or where to put you because you disappeared so suddenly without explanation and without context. Dr. Boss, what her research has shown us is that ambiguous losses do tend to be more difficult to move on from than non-ambiguous losses. And that's what happens with ghosting, right? The person has disappeared, but that lack of explanation, communication, closure leaves them feeling very much present. And again, I'm sharing that with you because I want to validate that lingering knot that you may be experiencing. Reason number four of why ghosting hurts so dang badly is because grief is synergistic. Loss in this moment in time awakens prior losses. Losses chain together in the narrative of who we are in our life story. Those losses kind of hook one onto the other. So when you are saying to yourself, this experience of ghosting should not hurt because we were only dating for a month, what I would say to you 
is this loss hurts because it is also chained to every prior loss you have experienced. So even if it's not conscious for you, those earlier griefs that you have lived through get activated, get poked at, get triggered in this experience right here, right now of being ghosted. Ghosting is painful not because you are weak, needy, clingy, or silly, but because of those four phenomena. The Zygarnik effect, your wise but pain in the ass brain, because it's an ambiguous loss, and because it awakens all prior experiences of loss. Let's move on to coping strategies. So if you have been ghosted, please promise yourself and me that you will resist the urge to make the ghosting about you. Ghosting says a lot about the ghoster and little to nothing about the ghost E. It's very easy to attach a story to the fact that you've been ghosted. And the story very often goes like this. I got ghosted because I am so X, because I'm not enough Y, because I'm entirely too Z, right? Insert whatever descriptors, you know, you're at risk of going towards. And I want to invite and challenge you to just drop the story. You were ghosted because the person that you were dating lacked the skill to turn towards you with their truth. You were ghosted because that person has a skill deficit. Do not take on things that don't belong to you. In terms of coping, here's a few more things that I want to invite and challenge you not to do. Okay. Do not do a single solitary thing to shrink or minimize your pain, which includes saying any or all of the following. It was only one month. I should have seen it coming. My brother didn't like him anyways. Just let the feelings be what they are. Feelings have a timestamp. Feelings have a rise and a fall, an ebb and a flow. Imagine feelings as a wave, right? They arc, they curb, they won't last forever. But the thing about feelings is they tend to hang around longer when we don't honor them. Constriction of emotion creates stuckness. As therapists love to say, the way out is through, right? Through the feeling, riding the wave. Do not do a single solitary thing to make this your fault. So this is, again, that idea of the arrow bending back towards ourselves. Resist the urge to bend the arrow back towards yourself. So this means do not say any or all of the following to yourself. This always happens to me. If I was, whatever, thinner, funnier, sexier, chiller, this wouldn't have happened. This one is a terrible one. I had it coming. Right? Those are self-deprecating Um, self-critical things to say. And if and when you notice yourself turning against yourself, I invite the pause, I invite the hand on the heart, I invite the deep breaths, and I also invite some self-inquiry, right? Whose voice is that? Is there somebody from your past that would have said that exact thing to you, right? So that process of identifying where did that voice come from, returning to a voice of self-compassion, It's a really important practice. Again, you were ghosted because that person lacked the skill necessary to co-create an ending. We don't need to say that the ghoster was a terrible person or the ghoster was a narcissist or the we don't need to like sort of put a label on them or throw them under the bus. That person bumped up against a relational roadblock and you are the collateral damage. Those are our don'ts. Don't shrink your pain. Don't make this your fault. What are the do's? Do seek support. Who can be in your corner? You know, step one perhaps is that your support person hosts a pity party for you just for a little while, right? That you get to have a pity party. You get to feel bad. They get to offer you not just empathy, but sympathy. Like, I just feel bad for you. So you get to have a pity party if that feels good, but let the pity party be a place that you visit. Don't move in to that place. Like don't, you know, unpack and settle down at the pity party. Just visit, stop by, have one drink, and then move on. 
And I also want your support people to remind you what you have to offer. They can sort of be the counterbalance to that story of, you know, this happened because I'm not X, Y, or Z enough. And I also want your support person or support people to be able to distract you, right? Because if that zygarnic effect is in full effect and your brain is looping and looping and looping, then it's so helpful to have a support person who can distract you, who can take you to a movie or take you out for a walk or out to dinner, whatever it is, kind of take your mind off of it. Like let that poor brain of yours have a break. Another do is do just give yourself a chance to catch your breath. There's that old adage that the best way to get over someone is to get under someone else. I suspect that pretty soon we're going to do an entire podcast episode about starting over after a breakup. So for our purposes here today, I just want to invite you to pause. You get to let this settle. You don't have to move on right away in order to prove to the ghoster that they don't get the last word or to prove to yourself that you're strong or to prove that your friends that you're okay. Like you get to go at your own pace and letting something settle does not mean tapping out of the dating world forever, right? Letting an experience settle is very different from tapping out or swearing off something forever or even for X amount of time. Like you don't even have to say how long you're going to pause and let an experience settle because you don't know how long it will take for this experience to be in the rearview mirror versus <laughs> driving the bus. And then the final coping strategy that I want to talk you through is one that's not very clear cut. And that is the idea of reaching out to the person who ghosted you. So is this a coping strategy or is this a recipe for self-destruction or is this self-abandoning to reach out to the person who ghosted you? So as with most things in a relationship context, the decision about whether or not you reach out to the person who ghosted you, it's highly personal and it depends so much on the context. But the thing that I know for sure is that if you are considering reaching out to the person who ghosted you, I want you, first of all, to just pause and check in about your motivation first. Get really clear, as clear as you can, about your why. Why are you wanting to reach out to the person who ghosted you? And let's just kind of talk through a few different motivations. Motivation is rarely clear-cut or black or white, but I would want you to feel your way into, am I wanting to reach out from a place of lack or am I wanting to reach out from a place of wholeness? What do I mean by that? The urge to reach out from a place of lack is this idea of I want to reach out so that the other person can tell me this, do this, so that I can move on, so that the other person can do a thing that will help me move on. I'm going to call that reaching out from a place of lack. If in your pause and your check-in, if what arises for you is that sense of, I want to reach out to the person who ghosted me because I want them to tell me that I'm a good person, because I want them to tell me that it was all their fault, because I want them to explain themselves to me. If that is your motivation, I just want to invite you to sit with it for a little bit of time. And I want to offer you three questions that might help you fill that void instead, right? My worry is that reaching out from a place of lack ultimately is giving away your power. It's putting your power in somebody else's hands and it is kind of hinging your healing on what somebody else does or doesn't do. And in this situation, it's hinging your healing or your progress on somebody else who's already shown you that they have a significant skill deficit. So here's three questions that you could perhaps work with before or instead of reaching out if that motivation does feel like it's from a place of lack. Here's the three questions. One, by what other means might I receive the affirmation I'm craving? By what other means 
might I be able to nourish myself? And why am I giving someone who has shown this behavior the power to define me? Right? Those are the three questions. I'll do them again. How else might I receive the affirmation I'm craving? How else might I be able to nourish myself? Why am I giving someone who has shown this behavior the power to define me? So just check-in questions. Again, no judgment, no shame, just checking in with yourself. And listen, if what you take away from the experience of being ghosted is that you are at risk of giving away your power and giving somebody else the ability to define you, of waiting until you get something from somebody else before you can even consider kindness to yourself. If those are your takeaways, if that's what this experience highlights for you, then it's one of those goddamn things where the painful thing is also a massive opportunity for self-awareness, for healing, for growth, right? And for an invitation towards self-love. So I can hate that this has happened to you while also loving or feeling excited about or hopeful for what you might do with this experience. So in terms of the motivation, again, if you want to reach out to the person who ghosted you in order to teach them a lesson or in order to show them how much they hurt you, sort of a revenge motivation, here again, pause. Your desire for revenge makes a ton of sense. It is so understandable. And at the very same time, there is no guarantee that you explaining how shitty that was will lead them to a place of understanding and apologizing. So the question here that I would like you to ask yourself is, can I reach out and share my feedback without attachment to any particular outcome? Can I reach out to share my feedback without attachment to any particular outcome. Because one very real outcome is that they may continue to ghost you. And your ability to heal and move on is actually not contingent on them recognizing that what they did was lousy. So reaching out from a place of wholeness would sound like this. I am going to reach out to the person who ghosted me because I have feedback I would like to share And I'm clear that my sense of worth is not contingent on whether or how they respond. But I'm reaching out for me. This is by, for, and about me. It's something that I want to say. It's feedback that I want to give. And then I'm committing to myself that after I reach out, I will take back my energy, take back my attention, and work on healing and moving along. That's the distinction between lack and wholeness. One quick example to kind of wrap us up here. A former student of mine had been ghosted and she decided to reach out to the person who had ghosted her. And she did exactly what we're talking about here. She paused, she checked in with herself about her motivation and her motivation was a blend of emotions, but the strongest aspect for her was a desire to, if she could, spare a future woman from the pain that she had experienced. She really wanted this man to understand the impact that his behavior had on her in the hopes that he would take this as a learning opportunity. So again, she hoped that if she shared her feedback with him, he would take it as a learning opportunity, but she wasn't attached to that outcome necessarily. So for her, the strongest element was this like altruism or this activism of imagining the women that he would go on to date and feeling a sense of protectiveness of them. So she reached out with no expectation of how he would respond. She shared the impact that his ghosting had on her. And actually in this situation, he acknowledged it. And he said that he was going to explore why he had done that. And he was going to figure out maybe how he could keep himself from doing it again. And then she let go and she moved on. Before we move on, I want to share one more coping strategy with you, which is just taking in the wisdom of the collective. So I mentioned earlier that I had queried my Instagram audience about whether or not they had been ghosted. And when I did that, I also posted a sticker and I asked people to share what they 
would want to say to someone who had been ghosted. So kind of like I asked the collective, like, what messages would you want to share with someone who had been ghosted? And I heard back from 200 people around the world on this one. My team and I did a sort of informal qualitative analysis. In other words, we grouped people's responses in a thematic way. And there were four main messages that the collective wants to whisper into the ear of someone who's hurting. Message one, it's not about you. It's about them. So this was, um, they said things like, don't take it personally as much as you can. Trust me, it reflects them, not your worth. They said things like, Ghosting speaks to who the ghoster is and where they're at in their healing journey. Category two was, they said, you deserve more, you are worthy, and be kind to yourself. Here they said things like, they don't deserve you, you are worthy of love and someone who can stay with you. And category three, the collective said, listen, you dodged a bullet. They said things like, "Um, be grateful that you learned about their character sooner than later. And they did you a favor by demonstrating that they're not mature enough to communicate. Oh, and then this one too. Rejection is a gift because it moves you closer to the right person. (laughs) And the last thing is this community in these responses, they really validated the complexity and the pain of the experience, including these two comments. It's okay to hold space for yourself to both miss them and feel deeply betrayed. That's sweet. Let's now talk about how to build your toolbox to prevent yourself from ghosting, right? Because we said before, the world is not neatly divided into those who ghost and those who are ghosted. Sometimes good people do lousy things. If you have been or if you find yourself in a situation where you have the urge to ghost, let's talk through some skills so that uh, you can maybe take a more communicative approach. All right, tool number one is don't beat yourself up. If you already have ghosted in the past, just don't beat yourself up. Start there. Uh, Self-flagellation is not our pathway towards evolution. As Maya Angelou said, do the best you can until you know better. And then when you know better, do better. That's what we're all about here in Reimagining Love, isn't it? So we're not going to beat ourselves up. We're just going to tool ourselves. Tool number two, self-reflection. Checking in with yourself about what it is that might fuel your ghosting behavior. Why are you at risk of ghosting? What keeps you? You know that I love the constraint question. What keeps you from ending contact in a more direct way? Okay, so what is the block? What's getting in the way for you of direct assertive communication. Here's five possibilities of the kinds of blocks that can get in the way. One, discomfort with hurting or disappointing someone, which by the way, this doesn't make you weak. It makes you empathic, right? It makes sense that you don't want to hurt or upset someone. Knowing that your choice to end a relationship is hurting someone feels uncomfortable. But the tough thing is that the cruelty of ghosting ultimately hurts more and it conveys a lack of respect. All right, second possible block is impression management. Sometimes what keeps us from ending in a direct way is a fear of seeming like a mean or cruel person in their eyes. And this is one that I hear a lot. In fact, it's one I hear quite a bit from men. I think it's really easy for us to confuse clarity and cruelty. Clarity is not cruelty. That fear of seeming like a mean person or a cruel person, it's not the same thing, right? Being an assertive person and being a cruel person are radically different things. But this idea can be really hard, especially if you're somebody who grew up hearing stories, for example, from your mom about how cruel your dad was, or if you grew up in a home with a cruel parent. Right? So in your effort to avoid being anything like that cruel parent, that effort is valiant, but please remember that there are a ton of shades of gray between cruelty and clarity. You can be direct and kind. All right, the third kind of block 
might just be that you have a long history of conflict avoidance and people pleasing. Sometimes we opt for ghosting or a slow fade to avoid the uncomfortable conversation. Sometimes we avoid uh, having to deal with an upset person, a hurt person. We just are avoiding conflict because that's what we've done our whole dang lives. The fourth one, sometimes the thing that blocks us from ending respectfully and assertively is our own low self-esteem. Why, you say? Because our own low self-esteem can make us believe that the other person isn't going to miss us anyways. Oh, that's a big one, right? Sometimes we ghost because we can't imagine that somebody's going to miss us anyways. Okay, so if that one lands for you, just hand on your heart, some nice deep breaths. And if that is your block, you know, that block points you directly to where your healing is, right? To learn how to cherish yourself as somebody who does make an impact on others, right? Who is missed by others when you go away, when you disappear, and that you deserve to end a contact directly and assertively because your presence will be missed, because your absence will be felt. Okay, the last one, sometimes I think that we get blocked from ending with clarity because we kind of carry this fear that maybe we've misperceived the whole relationship. And so if we end it directly, the other person is going to laugh and be like, oh my God, why are you ending this thing so directly? Like, we weren't anything. It was so casual. Like, why are you having such a big dramatic response to this thing that was so casual? If that does happen, what I would want you to do is bless that person and wish them well, because that is a deeply unempathic response. If what you end up doing is ending the relationship, even if it was a casual one, if you turn towards that person and you try to end with care and respect and directness, and their response is to be like, oh my God, that's so awkward. Why are you ending this so formally? If that's their response, they have done you a huge favor and they're just telling on themselves. They're just telling you how uncomfortable they are with actual like effective, assertive, empowered communication. But that might be your block, right? Your block might be, I'm afraid of ending this thing directly because I'm afraid of them like laughing in my face and saying, this is not even a serious thing. Okay. But like what I'm wanting you to do is play that through and know that if that's their response, that is completely on them and ending even a casual thing with respect and care, that's the empowered way to go. The sort of takeaway question here, the journaling prompt here is for you to ask yourself, what keeps me from being able to close this relationship with clarity and directness? The third tool I want to offer you is if you have an assertiveness skill deficit, Start to notice little places where you can choose the more direct rather than the less direct path, right? Just start working on being more assertive. Being more assertive in life in general is going to help you be more assertive in your dating life. So when your barista makes you the wrong drink, ask them to remake it rather than just drinking it. When you have an issue with your friend, call them instead of texting them. If you need some time alone uh, after a family event, let your family know that you're going to take some alone time, spend the night in by yourself, rather than making up a fake excuse that you have other plans. Even something as small as holding the door for a stranger or initiating a little bit of small talk in line, like those little bits of assertiveness of kind of taking up space can help you feel comfortable being seen. And then those assertiveness skills can translate into your dating life. Witnessing yourself being brave will help you then be empowered when the time comes to shut down a connection with somebody. Tool number four, if you're actively dating, it can be helpful to keep a note on your phone that has language that you can use when you are in a position to close down a potential connection. 
right? Just like keep the language on your phone, keep the note written in your phone. And the point here isn't to have like a canned response. The point here is to stack the deck in your favor to help you choose a response that you can feel good about instead of just disappearing. So having that note ready to go can just make it easier to do the right thing. Here's some sample language. Obviously, figure out the words that feel most like you. Thank you for a fun night, but I'm not interested. It was nice to meet you, but I'm not feeling enough of a connection to meet up again. I enjoyed our time together, but I don't see this progressing. Tool number five. If you've been seeing someone consistently, I'd recommend that you close that connection down with more than just a one or two line text. Remember that in the data from my Instagram community, most people had been ghosted at the one to three month mark. So in those situations, I really do want you to consider something more than just a text to close it down. Can you meet up or can you at least do a FaceTime or a phone call? You don't need to spill the entire contents of your soul, but I do think that ending with directness does two things at once. It helps the other person feel closure and begin to move on, and it gives you the chance to experience yourself being brave and being kind. My best friend, Allie, talks about sharing the essential truth. You need to figure out what your essential truth is, and that obviously is bound by how long the relationship was, what the nature of the relationship is, your actual reasons for wanting to end the relationship. But I want to offer you some statements that might be helpful for you to incorporate into your breakup language or your ending language. So things like, I'm working hard on myself right now and I'm realizing I'm not in a good place to be in a relationship. I'm not feeling invested enough in this connection. It doesn't feel good or right or fair to you to continue. Just saying, I'm sorry, I don't want to hurt you, but I also don't want to stay in a situation where I'm not seeing a future and making sure that you include, I respect you as a person, I wish you well, right? So feeling your way into the essential truth. Okay, we covered a lot of ground here. We talked about the big context in which ghosting occurs. We talked about the ways in which some elements of the modern dating climate set the stage for ghosting. We talked through why ghosting hurts. We talked about some coping strategies you can use when you've been ghosted. And we talked about how to build a toolbox that helps you be assertive, empowered, skilled, and ready to end with care and respect. Bottom line is that dating is a crucible. It is rich with opportunities for growth and expansion when you are willing to show up as a student and treat your experiences like data. Again, make sure that you don't confuse disappointment with shame, right? It's okay to feel disappointed when you've been ghosted. That's very different from feeling ashamed about being ghosted. Dating in the modern world needs to follow the golden rule to treat others the way that we want to be treated, even when it makes our palms sweaty and our cheeks flushed. I am sending you so much love, wishing you well, and cannot wait to connect on our next episode of Reimagining Love. Take good care. Are you interested in exploring how to rebuild trust after a betrayal like infidelity and to have support, tools, and insights on that journey? If so, I invite you to check out my brand new e-course, Can I Trust You Again? Rebuilding After Betrayal or Deceit. This is a five-module self-paced course based on research and clinical wisdom backed by my many years of experience working with couples who are attempting to rebuild after betrayal and my many years training marriage and family therapy graduate students to work with couples who are grappling with infidelity. You can take this course alone or with your partner at your own pace. After completing the lessons and activities in this course, you will better understand yourself and your partner, and you will have taken the necessary steps to begin healing the pain and reimagining your relationship in light of this crisis. This course will set you on your path forward, whether you continue as a couple or end the relationship. And If you're currently single, you will have the tools needed to lay a foundation of trust in your next relationship. To learn more and enroll, 
head to www.courses.dralexandrasolomon.com. You can also find the course link in the show notes. Thank you for listening to our show. Our producer is Elizabeth Vogt. Our editors are Mary Chan and Danelle Cloutier of Organized Sound Productions. Our theme music was composed by Slade Warnkin. Reimagining Love is executive produced by me, Dr. Alexandra Solomon. Do you have a relationship question that you want to have answered on the show? Follow the link in the show notes of this episode to send in a written or audio question. Questions can be about intimate partnerships, family relationships, friendships, you name it. I can't wait to hear from you.